once more under the breach, dear friends, once more. Guys, welcome back. If this is your first time, welcome to the Senior War Song Podcast. My name is Mikey. I am your humble host, your Christian layman, your common theologian. Here, your fellow dude seeking the knowledge of God in humility, praising God for the saving work of Christ and the Holy Spirit that regenerated my heart according to Christ's work. And now he leads me in the way, in the way of his word and his power and strength and wisdom like he does all believers. This podcast is about propagating the Christian worldview, advancing God's kingdom, advancing his church, and trying to establish Christian culture. We're doing that here together and trying to look at maybe those big ideas that surround like systematic theology and seeing how they're applied in our personal lives, but also how we should apply them as far as how we are ordered, meaning our society, our culture. So here we are, and we're on this episode. Oh man, let's get fired up. This episode centers on one of the most hotly debated subjects within the political and cultural realm of our nation. But it is one that we must attack as followers of God. It's a subject of life and death, a subject with dire consequences that threaten the very foundation of our republic. I will argue that this particular situation, this subject, if you will, is not relegated to simple private life, you know, let others live as you live your own life. But no, this, this subject indeed has ramifications that if it's further advanced, it'll, it destroys everything our very way of life. So my friends, let us dive deep into the arena. The title of this episode is The Rise of the Death Cult and the Fall of the Republic. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts, and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, But they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. God's people were given a specific mission, to cleanse the land they were to inhabit. The Lord's mercy gave place for the inhabitants of this land to turn from their wickedness. But alas, their evil was fulfilled. Now, God was to fulfill his promise to his people 
and established them in a land where they could be a priesthood to the nations by first conquering it and delivering it from the horrifying sins that were cursing it. The Lord's people instead compromised with the mission. They were corrupted by the wicked ways of the inhabitants. This wickedness, this abomination culminated into the sacrifice of their children to demons. The people God had chosen to be his treasured possession played the whore and poured out the blood of their children to satisfy the murderous appetite of the demonic. The death cult worships the gods of darkness as they pour the lifeblood of their children onto the altar. And despite the clear command of the God of truth, his people join in this slaughter. The prevailing worldview of our culture today carries on the legacy of the death cult. The soldiers of hell's legions are still being served. Their bloodlust still being satisfied except the people who fight ferociously for the ritual of child sacrifice do so not on the open altar of demon worship, but instead the worldview of darkness convinces them to sacrifice their children upon the altar to satisfy the God of self. The godless culture of the day expresses what we as a people worship, the self. Everything in our culture is to satisfy our own flesh, to fulfill our own dreams, to do what we want, to consume what we want, despite everyone else. And everything in our culture expresses that. It's clear this is what we worship, the idol of self. Anyone who gets in the way of self-worship is sacrificed upon the altar. This includes the children that reside in the womb of the one person who was called to care for them the most, their own mothers. These children are aborted, their blood poured out to appease the God of self. Nothing will get in the way of the self and its will, its dreams, its self-defined purpose, especially the responsibility of raising a child. The Lord's anger is kindled, and I can only see him bearing the sight of child sacrifice for so long before we as a nation are judged accordingly. You see, we need to understand the consequences in their entirety when it comes to this practice of abortion. In essence, the killing of children while they are still in the womb of their mothers. The act itself is horrifying enough, but its effects echo throughout society into the management of our institutions, and it puts into question the very role of these institutions. Because the prevailing worldview of today is founded on false presuppositions that uphold humanism, naturalism, environmentalism, and all the other bogus isms. Many people have been deceived into subjectively supporting this action with a strong sense of righteousness. And there are those that I personally and deeply care for who hold a position that strongly supports this wicked practice. And from my perspective, that is upheld by the worldview of truth, because it is based upon the word of God who is, I can only hope they will eventually be drawn by the Father's grace to have their eyes opened as mine were by the loving kindness of my faithful creator. But I want to make it clear. This position of abortion advocacy is led by a death cult that is committed to its cause, and those that support it are proselytes. The abortion industry is a death cult of humanist elites that convert the people to their sick cause. They convince young women to forsake their God-given call to motherhood. They prey upon the trauma of rape victims and convince them to suffer even greater trauma for the sake of the self, the God of our age. It is truly disgusting and sick, and it is a cult that we must fight against in the power of God. With his word, led by his spirit as a people, we must unite and say, this is not right, and this is enough. What we need to realize as a people is that this death cult cuts at the very core of who we are. 
or who we should be as a people. And as it continues its campaign of death, the Republic is doomed for destruction. We must take to the public square and firmly establish the biblical Christian worldview. We must demolish arguments in the power of God and His wisdom and topple the idols that have so deceived a large portion of this nation into aligning itself with this horrific cause. By God's grace, we must firmly establish Christian culture. You see, culture is but the visible expression of what or who we worship. As followers of Christ, we do not become part of the pagan culture that may lead the places in which we live. We are called to conquer them by the advancement of the gospel, the good news that Christ is Lord and King and He has redeemed His people. Christian culture will undoubtedly set the institutions of our land into their rightful place, and this culture will firmly establish an objective, universal value on human life. So today, my friends, we are going to utilize the worldview of truth to defend this position and explain why it must be our position. Because in essence, this is the heart of the matter. If the value of life is subjective, then it has no real value at all. If the value of life is subjective, then it has no real value at all. And if this be the case, the Republic will surely fall. Christians, those of the way, are called to be lovers of their people and their place. We are commanded to disciple the nations. And so, as lovers of our neighbors, we live our lives to glorify God and reveal to others the God of truth through our words and our deeds. As lovers of our neighbors, we must fight for them, their physical well-being, their hearts and souls. And so in this fight, we seek to establish Christian culture so that our nation will permeate with the outward uh, outward expression of true worship. And by God's grace, our neighbors shall join in with regenerated hearts and so be a flourishing people. Our Christian culture must presuppose that human life has a high value. We hold as a basic assumption the high value of human life. As Christians, because we presuppose that God is of the ultimate highest value. No other thing or being has a higher value than the Creator. Now, you're probably wondering why I am asserting humanity's high value by arguing that God is the ultimate value. Well, my friends, let's work this thing out together. First, let us clearly establish that God is indeed the ultimate highest value. We do this by looking to the universal truth that is revealed to us by our Creator in His Word. Exodus 20 is where we first receive the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses to be taught to the people. Here are the first two. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The Lord The God of truth explicitly commands that we are to place no other being, object, or institution above Him. His rightful place in our personal lives, within our culture and society, is the transcendent position, the first priority, the highest value. It says further in Exodus 34.14, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. We must not be mistaken by our subjective definition of terms. For in our world, 
Jealousy often comes with a negative connotation. And there are a lot of times where this is warranted. But what the Lord is making clear is that he is the only one who has the rightful place of your worship. He is the sovereign God who formed all things and gave them purpose. And he alone has the legitimate claim to your worship. We can relate this to human terms. You know, for example, as a husband, I made a vow before Christ that I would be faithful to my wife. And in so doing, I recognize that she alone has the right to my sexual intimacy. If I were to give my intimacy to another or foolishly place myself in a position where that is even implied, she has every right to be jealous. It is a righteous jealousy. In the same way, when we speak of worship, God alone is the one to which we owe worship in its entirety. The Lord in his righteousness is jealous for that position. You see, my friends, God willing, we will further describe this in depth along our journey. As we go through our podcast, we're going to outline like series and you know systematic episodes going through worldview and the different pillars of worldview. But for the sake of concise articulation to support our thesis regarding the value of life, that's what we're talking about here, I want to identify one pillar of worldview because it, it pertains to this, okay? And that pillar is the axiological pillar. This pillar asks the question, what, if anything, has ultimate value? And there are godless worldviews that hold as a basic assumption that humanity is of the highest value the highest value, or material is of the highest value. But as Christians, we must emphatically reject this presupposition and declare that God is of the highest ultimate value. In Revelation 4, we get a glimpse of God's throne room. There sits on the throne one who is magnificent in his appearance, and around him is the celestial body of elders and heavenly creatures. Bursts of light and fire go forth from the throne, and the heavenly host worships the one who is on the throne. And they cry out, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. In their holy declaration of worship, they cry out, Worthy are you, our Lord and God. The word worthy is translated from the Greek word axios, right? Like axiological, what I just said. And then there's axios. It's like the root term. Thayer's Greek lexicon defines this adjective as something that has weight, like having the weight of another thing of like value or worth. You see, worship is very specific in its definition and object. Right, Love is a powerful word, and it has great meaning as a verb. To love someone, to truly love someone is saying something. But worship means even more. We worship that which we ultimately love most. What we value most. Worship is the inner and outer expression of what or who we hold as the highest value. In Christ, I am called to love my wife, to love my children, to love my neighbor and further love my enemy, but I worship none of them. The Lord our God is the axios of our faith. We are to worship him alone. And God, our God of highest value, made man in his image. And so we hold that humanity has a very high value. This is the connection, you see. The reason we must first establish God's value before we can clearly see in biblical context humanity's value. For in Genesis 1, God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so the biblical narrative reiterates this powerful moment when it says, So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The Lord reveals that he uniquely formed into being us. He formed us, humanity, from the dust and breathed into us life. Breathed into us eternal souls from which we can reason. And he called us to have dominion over all the creatures. He gave us these souls, the ability to communicate and reason. He formed us into rational creatures. All of creation in its natural state proclaims the glory of God, but thus it was programmed. Man in God's image was given reason, the ability to ponder, to will and to act, to write poetry and sing and communicate with his soul the glory of God. Our value is not equal to any other earthly creature. It is higher. For we were specifically made in the image of our creator who is the highest. The Lord further emphasizes this point when he speaks to Noah and declares, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Our lifeblood is sacred. That which moves through us and sustains our ability to physically live is something that is not to be taken without an account. For God has made clear that it is of a high value a universal value for all of humanity, for we are all image bearers. But some may ask the question, when does life begin? When is this high value placed upon a person? Is it at the moment of birth? Is it at some arbitrary moment during a person's development? By what standard or truth do we determine the beginning of life and its value. The biblical Christian worldview supports the position that human life begins at conception. This is supported by the special revelation of God's word, and it is further affirmed by the natural revelation of the created order. And what I mean by natural revelation is, is scientific discovery, right? God has given man dominion over the earth, and part of that dominion is exploring God's natural creation. And that is what calls us as Christians to undergo scientific discovery. So God's word declares this position. And obviously, because it's the truth, it's affirmed by the natural revelation of the created order, the scientific discovery of the things within the physical realm. Let's keep going. The Lord speaks to Jeremiah and calls him to the position of prophet. Right? We're going to establish the biblical framework for this affirmation. Yahweh God declares, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. The Lord speaks to Jeremiah as a person who was formed in the womb. He had his identity as a creature. As a valued person, while the Lord was forming him and crafting him into being. God is saying here, before I, the creator, formed you, my creature in the womb, I knew you. The Lord speaks of the person, his identity, his value, while he is in the womb during the process of development. King David further testifies to this truth when he declares to God in Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The Lord crafts his creatures with love and care. While they are in the womb, they are given precious value and attention. The Lord, your creator, brought you into being, my friend. He gave you your name, your purpose, and by his will alone do you exist. At the moment of conception, you gained your physical personhood. And the divine hands of the living God knit you together in your mother's womb. The account of Mary and Elizabeth's meeting solidifies this revealed truth. Mary is pregnant with the Christ and goes to meet Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. 
As Mary greets Elizabeth, the following is recorded. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Luke, the author of this account, inspired by the Holy Spirit, identifies John as a baby within the womb of Elizabeth. The first person to praise the Lord incarnate is a baby in the womb of his mother. He is not a bundle of cells or an object with the same value as an appendix. He is identified as a precious baby. And his physical position within his mother's womb or stage of development does not negate his value as a creature breathed into being by God. The natural revelation of scientific discovery affirms that which is given to us in the word of God, like I said earlier. And I make this point so that it is abundantly clear that truth declares in all its entirety that we are valued individuals at the moment of our conception. On the most basic genetic level, it is clear where we stand in terms of our value throughout our development process as individual people. Humanity is diploid in nature, meaning on the most basic genetic level, we are defined by the makeup of our DNA. It consists of 23 pairs of chromosomes. Now, I know there are anomalies and genetic deficiencies due to the corruption brought about by the fall of man. And those who have these deficiencies have just as much value as any other person. I want to make that clear. But I'm saying this to make the clear distinction between haploid and diploid cells. Sex cells, you know, the sperm of the male and the egg of the female, contains 23 chromosomes each. These cells, in and of themselves, will not form into human beings. When these sex cells join, the diploid state of humanity is restored. Under the natural process, these cells will continue to develop the child within the womb. So you see, conception is the most logical, ethical, and natural point where a person should be defined, and thus their life valued. God in his mercy reveals this truth to us by specifically communicating it in his word, as well as the natural scientific discovery of it. We can't just pick an arbitrary place within someone's development that suddenly they have value. You know, that just simply depends on the whims of any individual. It is clear, based off everything that I've outlined, that it, that it must be defined a person, who they are, their identity, at the moment of conception. So how are we to order our society based upon this truth, this universal reality that is objective in nature? Is this a matter that remains in the private spheres of life? Does the governing authority have the right to get involved in such matters? As Christians, are we to live and let live, as they say? In order to effectively answer this question, we have to look at this from a 10,000-foot view and understand the role of the governing authority in terms of our Christian worldview. To be clear, we as Christians need to understand that government has a God-ordained role, and thus it should be ordered in a certain way. There are certain types of government philosophies that are objectively evil, because their founding principles are by nature unbiblical and usurp the God-ordained role. There are others that we can objectively appreciate and see as good. You know, whether that's a constitutional republic, an aristocracy, even a monarchy, right? We can objectively appreciate these different forms of government as long as that governing authority is fulfilling their God-ordained role.
They're not stepping outside the bounds of that limited role that God has placed them in. Within the context of our conversation today, we must first establish the role of government and determine what behavior should be criminalized. What behavior does the government have a right to prohibit amongst its citizens? Now, God willing, in the future, like I said before, we're going to pour into this matter in great detail. It's going to have its own episode, in essence. What is what is the role of the state, the governing authority outlined by, by biblical principle? But it's, it's imperative for our conversation today that we understand these principles. We need to understand the role of government because it works directly with this situation. I mean, that's what the fight is over, right? When can the government regulate these practices? So that's why we have to tackle this, so that we can further our targeted dismantling of the death cult. Christ our King established different authorities within the kingdom here on earth, and each has a sphere of authority. The established authority is limited to that sphere of influence. Now, each sphere, in essence, is a check upon the others, but they are never to usurp each other. This is the God-ordained way. So fathers are the authorities over their families. The institution of the church over the sacraments and the organizing of the local community of the elect. The governing authority presides over the orderly procedure of the culture. These are the main building blocks among others. You know, there's education, there's media and the arts, other institutions, each one God-ordained, each one Christ has sovereignty over, but they all have their own role. And I say this simply to say that government and the governing authority is, is limited in his authority. That, that is a nature of biblical government. He has a specific God-ordained role, and it is not totalizing over all the other spheres, Right? Government isn't the only vehicle through which God moves. It's not like God and then he does everything through the state. That's wrong. We do not view government as inherently evil, right? It's not an institution that is in and of itself bad. Like we stated, it is instituted by God as good. Dr. Glenn R. Martin who has influenced me greatly with one of his works. And you're going to hear about him a lot if you stick uh, with this journey, if you walk with me along this podcast journey. But Dr. Martin provides a very good definition of government when he says, government is a gift of God for the orderly procedure of man in a fallen world. Government is revealed by God to be a way for us to be ordered so that we can continue to flourish in this fallen world. Government punishes the wrongdoer and provides a sense of order so that the members of society feel safe enough to proceed in their endeavors of human flourishing. But this still does not answer the question we must answer. What are the civil magistrate's limits? From a Christian's viewpoint, according to scripture, how does a Christian culture and people establish the limits of their governing authority? To be clear, there is a separation of church and state, but not of Christ and state, right? We're not supposed to have an ecclesiocracy, meaning your priests, your pastors, you know, they're, they're your governors and your generals and your presidents. No, they're separate. But Christ, our Lord, is king over all. And if we believe in the redeeming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must believe that there can be instances where a nation is truly discipled. In fact, we must strive for this, for it is the command of Christ in the Great Commission. We must believe that it is possible that a nation will be filled with a redeemed people, and thus they will think a certain way, desire certain laws, and seek certain leadership. I mean, it only makes sense. A nation filled with Christian people will undoubtedly seek to order their government in a Christian way. Right? This only makes logical sense. Or am I way out in left field? I argue I'm not. So what is that Christian way? In my journey as a small fish in this large pond of theology and Christian political theory, I have discovered that within the kingdom, this is a point of discussion between several camps that involves much minutia. 
you know, with, within the, the reformed theology, there's many camps like theonomy, classical two kingdom, you know, there's radical two kingdom, um, which I just fully reject. It shouldn't even part of a conversation, but it's needless to say, you know, within Christianity, within the kingdom, we're all having this discussion. What are the limits of the governing authority? And we, we have to get into the fine details of that. But I believe here and now I can, I can at least define a baseline of Christian political thought that we can all agree on. A baseline that firmly sets into place the limits of the governing authority, as well as its clear responsibility within its sphere. Once I establish these limits and baselines of the magistrate, we will know how we should order society to deal with the rampant destruction brought about by this death cult of our modern age. The most concise manner in which we can discuss the role of the governing authority is by identifying the core rights given to us as individual image bearers of God. Right? In, in order to look at government and order it correctly, we have to view us as individual image bearers formed into being by God and say, what, what rights has God given to us each as, as, his, as individual creatures? Right? God has placed a high value, as we've said, on each individual. And thus they have rights that are given to them by God, who is the highest authority. There is no lesser authority that has a right to arbitrarily take from the individual these core rights. These core rights are the rights to life, liberty, and property. Now, if you know anything about our founding and uh, that period with worldviews, you're probably thinking, dude, Mikey, like life, liberty, property. Who are you, John Locke? That comes from the traditions of rationalism. What are you, a deist? I know, I know. And maybe it's because of the American influence. And I fully understand that the founding principles of American government were a compromising combination of biblical Christianity and enlightenment rationalism. But I assure you, I affirm these core rights as they are given by the biblical God based upon the presuppositions of his truth. And for the sake of time and keeping our conversation on track, I'm not going to digress. Right? I, I, can, uh, I can back these core rights up with biblical scripture, and we'll talk about that in the future. But let's stay on track. But anyways, life, liberty, and property. The governing authority is constrained by the law. You know, so maybe something like a constitution. I don't know if you remember when we had one that was actually upheld that people followed. But the idea of a constitution in a republic is, hey, these are laws outlining the limits and the authorities of the governing body. This establishes objective standards for the God-ordained role of the magistrate. If the magistrate usurps these standards, these laws, he is deemed tyrannical and the person that is in that position is resisted. Right, we've, we've talked about this concept a lot in our first episode, our pilot episode, Tyranny is Satanic. You know, likewise, your neighbors can also become tyrants, right? Your fellow citizens of the Commonwealth, they cannot arbitrarily deprive you, their fellow citizen, of your God-given rights. So at the core of criminal law, the governing authority prohibits individual behavior that would deprive other individuals of their God-given rights. So, for example, we're going to write a law that says you can't murder your neighbor, right? You can't just arbitrarily and maliciously take the life of your neighbor. You can't kidnap your neighbor. You can't, you know, confine them arbitrarily. You can't enslave them because they have a right to their liberty. And you can't steal their stuff. You can't rob them can't burglarize their home because they, they have a right to that property that God has given them as individuals. This, this is the core basis of how we should write our laws. This is ordered liberty. It is the only way in which liberty can truly flourish because ultimately God desires his people to exercise their liberty to fulfill his will and advance the kingdom. The civil magistrate punishes the wrongdoer 
who seeks to unlawfully deprive an individual or people of their God-given rights. Consequently, since it is clear that the unborn are, unborn are indeed people, they are guaranteed the same rights as any other individual. No person, whether it is the mother of the child or not, has the ability, let alone the right, to arbitrarily take the life of that child. The unborn are not subhumans. And this gets me as far as a certain section of the modern debate revolving around abortion. I've heard people relate restrictions on abortion to the days of chattel slavery. Because the government has a say in what a woman does with her body, apparently. I find it ridiculous. Because the reason we despise chattel slavery is because the authorities of the time subjectively devalued a segment of the population as property rather than image bearers of God. And so in reality, abortion carries on the legacy of chattel slavery as the death cult devalues the unborn and identifies them as subhumans. It puts them on the same level as a, as a medical procedure, as, as removing a tumor. Our laws must be based upon universal and objective values according to an objective and universal truth. If a citizen seeks to take the life of the unborn, a fellow citizen, the civil magistrate has the authority to prevent and punish that behavior. For it violates the God-given right to life that these beautiful developing people have. I mean, in order for you to justify the act of abortion, you in essence have to deem it a justified homicide under the law. Let us remember that according to every facet of what is good and ethical, the unborn are clearly established as individual members of humanity. God's word declares it. The diploid state of humanity further affirms this position, and therefore the laws of logic and ethical reasoning dictate that humanity begins at conception. You really can't argue this point. So you have to argue it from a perspective that, yes, these are people, but we believe that ending their life is justified. Now, there are certain situations where our laws rightly justify a citizen's actions when taking the life of another citizen. The objective principle that limits these situations is the high value that is placed upon human life. Homicide is only justified when protecting the life of another from imminent death or serious bodily injury. Likewise, the civil magistrate is justified in executing the sword to punish someone for maliciously taking the life of another. That's why we can support the idea of the death penalty for murderers. Right? But the unborn have done nothing to deserve such a punishment or justified ending of their life. They are the innocent of the innocent when it comes to the physical nature of man. And so abortion advocates, especially the elitist death cult priests, argue abortion as a right, meaning for any reason, any reason whatsoever, a mother can just end that life for the sake of convenience. When in every other situation we justify homicide in our society, it's, it's an order to protect another life, right? Justified self-defense. You know, you're justified in protecting your family with deadly force when someone kicks in your door and tries to harm them, right? Those are the specific and limited situations where you won't be arrested for murder or for or any other level of criminal homicide like voluntary manslaughter. Yet with abortion, right, we, we've argued that these are indeed people, you can't deny that. And yet, for the sake of convenience, we can snuff their life out. You know, the precedent of death that was established by the U.S. Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade and the agenda propagated by the death cult asserts that the unborn have no rights. They assert that they're in fact not even people. They share the nature of an appendix or unwanted tumor. And in fact, the mother has the absolute right, like we've talked about, to snuff them out for the sake of her own convenience. Guys, it's madness. 
It really is. It's utter chaos, and it destroys the very foundation of ordered liberty. Why? Because abortion destroys the notion of objective value and presupposes that life's value is indeed subjective. And if life's value is subjective, my friends, the republic is lost. Let let us define our terms. Objective, in essence, is what occurs in reality. Right, the absolute nature of our existence that is outside of ourselves. Subjective entails that which exists in our minds from our own personal perspective. Now, a society will inevitably order itself according to its presupposed nature of truth and thus its presupposed nature of right and wrong. Now, what I mean is truth's nature will determine virtue's nature. If we hold to a revealed truth that is absolute, then we can clearly define what is right and wrong according to that truth. We have a standard we can look to. But if we hold to a truth that is particular and not universal, according to the subjective view of each individual, then in essence, each individual is entitled to their own sense of right and wrong. If this is the case, as it certainly is now in Western civilization's decline, then how can a people come together to even write laws and order behavior if there is no objective standard? Right? Some people say you can't legislate morality, but and I used to be someone that said that. I, I used to say that, uh, but then I, I was, I was kind of taught and my eyes kind of opened like what, a law by nature centers on the idea of morality, right? The idea that you have to limit a certain behavior with this law. So you can't. And if we don't have an objective standard as a people that we can unite around to write our laws, it's utter chaos. It's unbridled anarchy. And we are on the precipice of it due to godless agents that pursue such causes as we speak of. Abortion destroys life's objective universal value. And if we allow it to thrive and, and the, and the false truths that undergird it, then the Republic certainly cannot stand. Now we've alluded to the consequences of such a heartless and dark way of thinking, but how far do these consequences reverberate through our society? Right? I've been arguing that if you allow abortion, the entire Republic is gone. Right? So you ask, are they only regulated to those who personally choose the end of life of their child? I say negative. The consequences echo throughout society and cause it to devolve into turmoil and chaos. You know, we as a people stand aghast as we view this sickness manifest itself in other areas of life. We watch in horror, for example, as an individual goes into an elementary school and slaughters children. And we wonder how someone could be so sick while in the same breath we celebrate a mother's ability to do the same with her own child. We ponder and question why we have a mental health crisis in this country, why so many people devalue themselves and end their own lives, while in the same breath we celebrate the subjective value of life. The prevailing ideals of our current society have no consistency. We have no belief system to hold fast to as a people. And generations are raised to seek their own relative feelings, for these are considered good in and of themselves. But these same generations are lost in their feelings as they have nothing to hold on to. There is no anchor or rock they can cling to in order to understand the reality they exist within. So they walk in darkness. They suffer illness as their mind is untethered to the truth, and they descend into madness. So that 18-year-old who's completely untethered from reality, who has all these feelings he's dealing with, and no one will show him the objective standard. And then he, and he looks out in society, and he sees how we celebrate the taking of life in these certain circumstances. And he says, well, I'm entitled to my feeling, my own truth, my own sense of right and wrong. 
And according to my madness, I can just kill these poor little kids in this school because that's how I value their life. Based upon, based upon the assumptions of this worldview we're talking about of darkness that propagates abortion, this kid is entitled to this way of thinking, right? He and others are blind to the beauty of creation and the sacred value placed upon themselves and their peers. They don't see that they were formed into being by a God that valued them to such a degree that the King of glory took on flesh only to have it torn to pieces for their sake. So as they fall further into chaos, their hearts are hardened and they turn to the slaughter. This manifests itself into things like active shooters and homegrown terrorists, gang and street violence, suicide, abortion. It's a culture of death. This disjointed and nonsensical presupposition of the modern worldview is even seen in our laws. Take, for example, the Commonwealth that I reside in, Pennsylvania. In Title 18, Section 2604, we have a criminal statute titled Murder of Unborn Child. Subsection A1 states, a criminal homicide of an unborn child constitutes first-degree murder of an unborn child when it is committed by an intentional killing. Yet abortion, the intentional killing of the unborn by their own mother is legal. How is this so? This can only be if we as a society resolve that the unborn are not valued equally based off an objective standard, but in fact their value is subjected to the feelings of others. So we'll hold accountable someone if they intentionally murder the unborn because the unborn are valued as a person, yet we will celebrate a mother's supposed right to do the same. This is clearly madness, my friends. To say that abortion is a right based on the subjective view of the mother is ludicrous. Based on this line of logic, what is stopping a mother from ending the life of her two-month-old child, her five-year-old child? Why is it only regulated to the unborn? Clearly, our laws recognize the life of the unborn if we are willing to say they can be murdered. Because you can't murder a bundle of cells or an unwanted appendix or tumor. So logically, or shall I say illogically, we can continue down this path and deem any child's life a certain value based upon the subjective view of the mother. This faulty logic does nothing but propagate the culture of death. We need to understand, especially as followers of Christ, that worldview is totalizing. It guides the institutions of society and is expressed by the culture of a people. Those who do not hold to a robust worldview will undoubtedly be led by those who do. Our legal framework, centers of education, the arts and media will be established by the culture of a people. Truth, what is right versus what is wrong is not relegated to our private life. We have to figure out who we are as a people, as a community, as a nation. Unfortunately, my brothers and sisters of the faith, we have abdicated the positions of authority to the godless and have allowed the culture of our people to be led by a cult of death. And what I mean by that is the institutions of the state, media and the arts, education, they are being governed by this prevailing worldview. The people that are guiding the institutions are executing the agenda of darkness. And this agenda destroys the foundation of liberty and the essential principles that undergird our republic. The individual image bears physical rights to life, liberty, and their property. There are even those that argue that abortion is a consequence of liberty. This is like the libertarian argument. If we love freedom, then we need to accept that some will use that freedom to make choices we disagree with, right? But guys, as I stated before, if we are unwilling to give the governing authority the legal ability to prohibit and punish the unjustified taking of life, then what do they truly govern? I mean, if they don't govern that, if they're not willing to limit that behavior, what's the point of limiting any behavior? This is obvious anarchy. 
If a mother can kill her child without consequence, then we are all entitled to the ability to subjectively, subjectively decide who lives and who dies. But this is not how we are to live. And as followers of the way, we need to continue to lay hold of our message, for it is the message of hope. I know I've hit you this entire podcast with a dark and depressing framework that testifies to our current culture, but we, we, we need not lose heart. We need to speak to these women and tell them that their child is not a curse. Despite the circumstance revolving around the conception, it may have been a horrifying traumatic circumstance like rape, but nonetheless, that child is not a curse. Life is not a curse. We, my friends, my fellow followers of the way, we are the propagators of truth's doctrine. We speak to true love, a love for neighbor, for even our enemies, and we speak to their intrinsic value according to the word of their creator. There are many among us who work diligently to minister this message of truth and love, and I want to commend them. Those steadfast men and women of pregnancy centers around the country that counsel young mothers and provide support and care for them and their child. They help those who have fallen prey to the death cult and aborted their children. And they help them by ministering the message of forgiveness and healing. They speak to the victims of rape and do not stack trauma upon trauma by encouraging the willful killing of life, but they dedicate themselves to helping these women take hold of their holy holy calling of motherhood, to be a mother to this child who had no say in how they were conceived. There are those who have fervently prayed, who have fought in the courts of the land and the assemblies of lawmakers to seat ordered liberty in its place by prohibiting this practice. The list goes on, but we all must take hold of our calling to love our neighbors. And as a man, I hear the ministers of the death cult decry any man's voice within the arena of abortion. And I personally scoff at the idea. This is an obvious ploy of the current totalitarian mindset that directs this cult because it is dedicated to the destruction of the biblical family. God makes it clear that men are to love their wives and children by fulfilling the biblical role of leadership, a provider and protector and spiritual authority. Yet, we are told to be silent by the current agenda. And we wonder why our society is filled with weak and feeble men when they are told that they don't even have a say in whether their child lives or dies for the first nine months of their existence. And honestly, there is a part of me that thinks I shouldn't have to be a part of this conversation. Because if there is anyone that should be an advocate for a child's life, it is their mom. But sadly, this is not the case. And as a man, I am called to be a wall for my people, to stand for those that can't stand for themselves, to speak for the voiceless, to defend the weak, to love my neighbor. So I won't be silent. I refuse to be silent, for I am an ambassador of God, called to declare the good news of Christ, called to declare to all that there is hope. God created you. He gave you a high value. He loves you, and though we have all rebelled and we deserve nothing but holy wrath, he calls us to repent and believe in the saving work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Remain steadfast, those of the way. Propagate Christian culture in every sphere. Despite the rage and hatred of the death cult, do not fail to declare hope to the hopeless. We are on the side of victory, my friends. We serve the God eternal. Sing your war song, Christian.